Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Another week has passed and we are all still here and I hope you are all healthy and happy and thriving amidst the craziness of the coronavirus pandemic. I think that people are starting to think about herd immunity, which is actually really exciting and something that I've been fascinated by and all of those amazing things with that. We're going to talk about all that on the podcast today with my friend, Dr. Tro Kalagian. I hope you will all check out my book, The Carnivore Code. It is now on Audible. Through Amazon, it is also available on Amazon as a print and ebook, thecarnivorecodebook.com. And I hope you will all please leave me a review for this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. It helps me get the podcast into more eardrums than it is now, which is how we help more people if you believe in this message. Thank you for being a part of my tribe. I hope you will all, whoa, something in my throat there. I hope you will all also uh, leave me a review on Amazon for my book. There are many trolls out there, and your genuine reviews help combat the trolls every day. So, Dr. Troll Collagian, he is a board-certified internal medicine physician, completed his residency at Yale University, now has a medicine and lifestyle practice focusing on diabetes, obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, and PCOS, that is polycystic ovarian syndrome, in New York. And he is super interested in lifestyle changes like me. He is my lifestyle change brother. And he's really a pretty incredible, um, uh, you know, uh, New Yorker, as you will hear during this uh, this interview with him. So I hope you will all enjoy the interview with Dr. Tro Collagian. I think he might curse at one point in this interview. Um, and I, I told him, Tro, no cursing, but he's a New Yorker. So I apologize for one curse word that may have slipped out, but I love his no-nonsense attitude as we get into all things metabolic dysfunction, his incredible story of weight loss. He used to weigh 350 pounds and lost a lot of that. He is now a ripped dude and looks amazing. He is an advocate for low-carb diets, which, as you will all know, is something that I am no stranger to and think can be quite therapeutic for many people. We also talk about coronavirus, the connections with metabolic syndrome, and I share some more of the data regarding that and some more of the data regarding asymptomatic cases for coronavirus. As many of you will know if you follow my social media and other platforms, um, I think that things are on the downside of what is called the FAR curve. If you want to hear more coronavirus stuff, Basically, the last five weeks, every podcast has been on coronavirus, except for one. So you can look back on the one I did with Kirk Parsley. You can look back on the one I did with Kate Shanahan, which was about vegetable oils and how they contribute to metabolic dysfunction. You can look back to the original coronavirus podcast from uh, early April or late May or late March, excuse me. And you can look to last week's podcast with Kirk Parsley, where we get into some of the recent flu data and this podcast with Dr. Tro. And then next week, I will continue to talk about coronavirus because um, I think that this is not over yet, but it will be soon. I hope you're all staying happy and healthy. So currently, I am in Houston, uh, Texas, 
doing some amazing business stuff with my team here and getting some time on the lake to connect with nature. And thankfully, my friends and family at White Oak Pastures sent me some amazing meat, and I wanted to give them a shout out for that and let you guys all know about White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. They are an OG sponsor of this podcast now. They are really leading the way in the regenerative agriculture world. They are sixth generation, 150 years in the Harris family. I've been to White Oak in Georgia. It is a really beautiful place, and I hope you will all consider coming out to our event there in what I believe will be the first weekend of October. I'll keep you posted on that called White Oak Chella. But you can come to the farm in Bluffton, Georgia and see the way that they are raising cattle. See what regenerative agriculture actually means in practice. And what it really means, what I have seen in person with my own two eyes, is that it means green grass, healthy cows, healthy lambs, lambs, lamb, healthy sheep, healthy sheeps, healthy sheep, Um, healthy pigs, healthy Iberian hogs, healthy chickens, healthy guineas. They rotate the ruminants through different pastures. They do 100% grass feeding and grass finishing. They compost back onto the land. The land is so rich. The dirt is so dark. It is so high in organic matter, which allows the carbon from the atmosphere and from the cows to be sequestered. They are carbon negative by life cycle analysis, and the increased organic matter in the soil also allows more water to be held within the water table there, which prevents runoff, and, 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 so many benefits to this, means healthier root system to plants and healthier plants, which means healthier animals who lead happier lives and create nourishment for ourselves and our families. And if you have never had the meat or organs from White Oak Pastures, do this. This will be a game changer for you. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD at whiteoakpastures.com for 10% off your first order. They are working so hard to get all this meat out in these crazy times. If you don't want to go to the grocery store or your grocery store sold out of good meat, they will be your friends as well. And they are amazing people. So please support White Oak Pastures. Check out their website. Look at all the amazing things they are doing. They are fantastico. Fantastico. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off. You know what else is fantastico? As always, my people at Ancestral Supplements, ancestralsupplements.com. They have what I think is probably the best slogan ever, which is putting back in what the modern world has left out. And I love that because you will all know that ancestral ideas resonate with my heart, with my soul, with every fiber of my being, and the modern world has left out a lot of things. And one of the big things the modern world has left out is organ meats. You all know that organ meats are central to my message as a nose-to-tail, animal-based proponent, if you've read my book, The Carnivore Code. And the more I learn about organ meats, the more I am fascinated by how unique they are in our diets. There are so many unique nutrients in there, peptides, but a lot of us can't get liver or spleen or pancreas or thymus or intestines or testicles. This is hard for us to get, and Intestinal Supplements has solved the riddle by allowing us to get grass-fed, grass-finished organ meats from amazingly well-raised cows in New Zealand. These are the greenest pastures I've ever seen, desiccated, so low-temperature dehydrated, encapsulated into a gelatin capsule and popped into our mouths quite conveniently. You can take them with water. You can do whatever you'd like. And I am such good friends with the people at Ancestral Supplements that 
I have spent some time with them right now when I'm in Houston, and we had a pill-swallowing contest. Do not do this at home. Don't you dare choke. But I dare say that the owner of Ancestral Supplements, my good friend, is a beast in the gym, and he is also the world record holder of the Ancestral Supplements pill-swallowing contest in one gulp. I'm not even going to tell you how many he can swallow because... Uh, I don't want anyone to get hurt doing this, but he is an animal. And these people at Ancestral Supplements live the message, which is what is so cool. And they care about all of you helping all of you get better nutrition. So one of the organs that I am super fascinated by right now in these crazy coronavirus times are is spleen and thymus. Now, spleen, as you know, is the organ where a lot of the bone, excuse me, a lot of the blood cells reside, and there are so many immune cells there. Thymus is where our immune cells, the T cells and B cells, are programmed. Both of these organs live in our chest. The thymus is behind the sternum. The spleen is in the abdomen. But these are great organs that I think we should all be taking for immune support all the time, but especially right now. And so you can get those in encapsulated pills through ancestral supplements. It is so easy because who can go to the grocery store and get spleen or thymus? Not me. If you can, then I'm jealous. The other ancestral supplement that I have been loving recently, in addition to my spleen and thymus, is living collagen. You all may know that I cut my hand pretty badly on my foil board. If you don't know that, then um, I'll be sure to share it in my Instagram stories. But I needed nine stitches in the palm of my hand. And I have been taking the living collagen to give my body a little extra support for the matrix of the the tissues in my hand that are healing right now. So those are sort of my favorite supplements right now from ancestral thymus, spleen, and living collagen are amazing. Check them out, www.ancestralsupplements.com. Use the code SALADINOMD for 10% off their Shopify at their Shopify site. And if you heard about it on this podcast, let them know. Send them an email. Send Brian an email. Say hi to Brian. Tell him what's up. See if he'll let you know how many pills he swallowed in the world record. Ask him about his world record push-ups and all the other world records he holds in the Barbarian and other amazing things. And uh, yeah, check out ancestorsupplements.com. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out and helping us all be more healthy. I love them all dearly. On to the podcast, my friends. Listen after for what is going on with me. All right, three, two, one, we're live. Dr. Tro Kalajian, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, my brother. <laughs> Listen, I'm happy to be here, man. I have your book sitting right here. I'm working my way through it. Amazing stuff. I've been a fan of your work for a long, long time. You know, everything you're saying is just absolutely needs to be said, in, in my opinion. And, and there's points that we disagree about, but I see you getting so much heat. And I just think to myself, somebody needs to be saying what he's saying. So I'm, I'm happy to be here, even though I may not agree on everything. Yeah. I'm like, even though I don't agree, like we should be able to say the things that he's saying, ask the questions that he's asking. Dr. Paul Saladino. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree, man. We just yeah. got to, we got to think outside the box. And, you know, definitely on this podcast, if you want to get into it, I would love to talk about the places where we may disagree. I suspect that's a whole lot less than where we agree but I've seen you talking about some of the things on social media recently that are really near and dear to my heart with this whole coronavirus epidemic. And, you know, what's so funny is with my podcast, I had probably eight or nine episodes saved up of people that I'd recorded with 
And then coronavirus happened. And I was like, those have all got to go into the freezer. Those are all in the deep freeze. And every week, all I can talk about is coronavirus because that's all anybody wants to hear about, which is fine because it's dominating our lives. And this is going to wrap back into a conversation that we were just having before we recorded, which is how pervasive the narrative over coronavirus is. Why can't we have a pervasive narrative like this around lifestyle change? But we'll get to that. Let's just start for people that don't know you. You've got a pretty amazing story, my friend. So, and for people that are not watching this on a video uh, on YouTube, because this will be on YouTube and iTunes, Dr. Tro is wearing a hat right now that says Keto AF. So like, I love it. He's on board with being Keto AF or being Keto Animal Foods. We'll talk about it. So, but what, just tell us a little bit about your story, how you got to this point, because you have a remarkable path, my friend. Yeah, I mean, uh, it matters. You want the the five minute, the ten minute, or the the twenty minute, you know, story. So I don't know how long your podcast is. The five go. minute story. We'll do the five minute story because we got a lot to talk about today. All right. So the five minute story is: um, I was obese my entire life. I had a, a period of time where I was an obesity parolee at age maybe fifteen to seventeen, where I did a vegan diet. And I basically, I should say, I did a prolonged fast into a vegan diet and then exercised. And I had a two-year period where I escaped obesity and then it just came rip-roaring back, gained all the way back, uh, back to basically a life of obesity uh, in through medical school, um, you know, in through residency, being an attending, essentially was a 350-pound attending physician trained in the Yale system where the most brilliant minds told me to eat less and move more and asked why I, you know, asked me if I was depressed or maybe I was stress eating or they just, you know, suggested I do surgery. Um, So that's the paradigm I came from until, um, until my wife, a couple of things happened. One, uh, I was inspired by, my wife to really make a change. Essentially, she was pregnant with her third kid and she asked me like, hey, you know, are you going to be around to, uh, to see them? And that really lit a fire under my butt to, you know, I had already been reading about satiety, appetite, hunger, you know, evolutionary diets, uh, what drives intake. I had already been reading about it because, you know, six months prior, she had basically, you know, said, hey, you're a smart doctor. You scored on the 90th percentile on your internal medicine board exam. Why can't you go figure this out? So my wife played me really well. You know, she played to all my weaknesses and my strengths. So I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. And then, you know, I, I, two major points happened that changed the way I look at dieting. One, I'm screening an alcoholic patient in my office, okay, and I'm going through the CAGE questionnaire, which we know is C-A-G-E, cutting, agitated, guilty, and eye-opener. And I'm literally asking, this is a series of questions that we ask an alcoholic to make them aware of their alcoholism and to actually you know, see how high risk they are for dependence. And lo and behold, I'm asking my patient, hey, do you want to cut down? And I'm answering it for food. And I'm like, shit, I want to cut down food. Sorry for cursing. Okay. Uh, Then I'm like asking, do you get agitated when people to tell you to drink less? And I'm thinking, oh my God, every time my wife tells me to eat less, or maybe I shouldn't finish the box of cereal or finish the box of ice cream or eat a fourth slice of pizza, it really pisses me off. 
So now the patient answers, yeah, I'm agitated when my wife tells me to drink less. I'm agitated when my wife tells me to eat less. So now I'm two for two on the cage questionnaire. And then do you feel guilty? Yeah, I would eat boxes of ice cream. I'd eat boxes of cereal and pizza. And I, I didn't know why I was always hungry. And I would look back and be like, is this, a, you know, am I deficient in something? Am I lacking something? Right? So I was, I, yeah, I felt guilty and shame. If you live a life of obesity, you feel that shame and guilt all the time. You know, and, and you've probably seen that given your field, you know, especially and then the last one's eye opener, you know, for alcoholics, it's do you drink, you know, do you, are you compelled to drink from stress or do you drink early in the morning when you feel like a real strong urge to? And I would find myself late at night or, you know, coming home, you know, nobody's home, nobody's looking. I'd be, you know, opening another box of chocolate or whatever it was. So uh, I was four for four in the cage questionnaire. And I remember that time I knew something was wrong, right? Something was wrong. Something had taken over the way some process had made my emotions change where I have a loving wife saying, hey, you know, why are you having four slices of pizza? And it wasn't judgmental. It was totally supportive. Hey, I noticed the box of cereal's done. Is everything okay? Like what happened, right? What process can take a loving, supporting comment and make it, why are you bothering me? Right. And I knew something had taken over my thought process and my emotional process. And the only thing I could think of was addiction, given that I was screening an alcoholic. So there was that. And then um, and then you turn to the literature. Right. Which, you know, you've been to and you're like, OK, you know what? I'm going to uh, first I was in denial. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to get agitated anymore. When my wife says, you know, maybe you should cut down on your food. I'm like, I'm in denial at first. I'm like trying to undo my risk factors here. You know, I'm trying to undo part of that cage questionnaire, which was positive. Anyway, um, but then it hit me like, I got to look at, I got to really go into this. And you go to the literature and what do you see? You know what? Like I'm a board certified internist. I would go to the head-to-head studies for any drug. So I went to head-to-head studies for any diet. And lo and behold, low carb always is better. So I'm like, what the hell? How I went to Yale, the smartest endocrinologists and, and, and cardiologists are there. How come nobody ever told me to do this? And then you look into, you know, how a low-carb diet works, you know, with uh, uh, basically leveraging neuropeptide YY, CCK, that ketosis providing appetite suppression and these neurohormones providing appetite suppression and that lack of that rewarding combination of carbs and fat. And it's like, Oh my God, what the hell happened to my last 35 years of my life? So, and then I lost 150 pounds. 150 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So How that's tall are it. you? Yeah, I'm 5'11. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and then I lost 150 pounds. And then I see, you know, uh, I, I, I'm very active on Twitter and, you know, social media. And I see people, you know, like, um, like, like, Lane Norton or um, Spencer Nadolsky or, or you know, the, the common voice or Yoni Friedhoff, these people who represent the standard quo of social media diet advice, which is eat less, eat lean, eat more frequently, you know, eat everything in moderation. And there's nothing wrong with sugar. And I'm like, what the f- F man, you guys are so wrong. 
And then anyway, I get certified in obesity medicine because I have to now, I can't let other people suffer the way I suffered. Okay. So I get certified in obesity medicine, open up a clinic. We have hundreds of patients. We remotely monitor them. We remotely track their CGMs, their body weight, their lean mass, their water weight, you know, their body composition, their heart rate, their blood pressure. We make eating for them easy and we ensure that their weight goes down. And now we have hundreds of patients who've been successful many of which have come on our podcast, you know, the Low Carb Energy podcast, and the rest is kind of history. But um, yeah, I've, I've very strongly fought against the status quo. And that's why I feel like we're brothers, because I see the status quo coming for you. And I'm like, I know what that feels like. And he's totally freaking right. And everybody should just shut up and listen to his opinion, you know, before they shame him or, you know, virtue signal or, you know, or, or, uh, you know, straw man, you know? So I feel like a brother in a way. We are, dude. We are. It's always, you know, it's been really fun the last couple of weeks to have just docs on the podcast, as many doctors as I can on the podcast to talk about how all this connects, because we're not just talking about obesity here. We're talking about coronavirus at the same time, and we're going to get to that and, and how they're all connected. But yeah, the status quo is it's a crazy thing. And I want to talk about tribalism with you. And I, I love that you're bringing up some of these folks online who are, you know, maybe from a different tribe and how there's this tribal fighting going on and how humans kind of align themselves with different tribes. But yeah, it's a crazy time. And believe me, I've felt the same thing with, you know, saying to people, what if, what if all vegetables are not immediately good for you? And I know you and I may disagree on that a little bit, but yeah, I've had, I've had the same kind of back and forth Kind of oh, yeah, fruit. Uh, yeah, I've been, oh. you know, there's a, a uh, article on, well, I don't know, what is it, WebMD that basically said I called fruit poison. So, you know, I'm right up there with you, man. I'm getting, I'm getting, the, I'm getting the straw manning, I'm getting the attacks. With my face and my website, this doctor said fruit, no, I never said fruit is poison. I said, you know what, treat dessert like poison and treat food, fruit like dessert. And, you know, low-carb doctor calls... Fruit poison. Fruit, fruit is you know, poison. Now on WebMD, you know. <laughs> I think that the you know I I hope that all the listeners will will see what we're driving at here, and that I did a podcast last week with Kirk Parsley, and he said something at the beginning. He said, "I reserve the right to be completely wrong about everything," and I love that. He's so humble, and you know, I think you and I and any doctor that has any degree of humility has to reserve the right to be completely wrong about everything but we all have a voice. And even people without doctoral degrees have a voice and have the right to question the status quo and say, are you sure that pizza in moderation is the best thing? Like maybe, isn't it just okay to say that pizza is bad, like period? Sugar is bad, period. Soda is bad, period. You know, like this is, it's, we have to be able to question this. And and I I think that the tribalism that comes out of sort of the, the hate speech or the, the way that people divide when you try and question things like that and the straw manning, like you said, and and really the ad hominem attacks, because I think both you and I have been, been the the subject of ad hominem attacks, which is where most of people go. I mean, it's so confusing to me when people on Twitter who are educated and have doctoral degrees, not all of them are MDs, but some of them are MDs, will call, will start name calling. And you think, that's why are you calling me a name? You know, why are you calling me an idiot? I'm sure people have called you the same thing. Like, why are people calling us idiots? Like well, I, I, I offering sh- ideas. I shouldn't talk, man. I'm the, I'm, I go straight for the ad hominem, you know, when, <laughs> well, let me tell you, I, I just have no, 
look, when you've suffered 35 years and 88% of the population is suffering the same way you are, okay, and over 44% are obese, over 70% are either overweight or obese, they have failed. Their time is done. They don't have a voice anymore. I don't even care. I, I don't even care if they think they're right. They're wrong. They have failed. Their time is done. Move over. That's how I feel. They're I wrong. It. They have failed. And let's just, just I want to segue into Corona because they have said, eat less and move more. And it's just you, the population cannot do it. They cannot eat less and move more. And these are all the people who've never had a weight issue in their whole life. Lane Norton, Yoni Friedhoff, Spencer Nadolsky, who I'm sure love the people they work with and respect their patients, but they have no idea what hunger is, what real hunger is, the way a 600-pound patient that comes in my office does, the way I did. And so I look at what coronavirus has shown us. People will immediately change. They will sustain that change. It's been six weeks people have been locked up, okay, wearing masks, wearing gloves in their homes. They, people will do as they're told if they understand the message and the message is right. And you know what? With obesity and lifestyle, the messages have been wrong, right? And the messengers have been wrong and they've blamed everyone else. So I, I, don't, I just, if I see something that's ridiculous, like high fructose corn syrup is fine, which Lane Norton has said, I will post the articles that disprove that and then proceed to call him some ad hominem. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I mean, you're a New Yorker too, right? So it's, there's, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, calling a spade a spade. There's a call and a spade a spade, but I love the point you're, you're making. You're the psychiatrist, man. So you tell me what it is. I don't know. You know, <laughs> you know I, I've officially decided that I've left psychiatry to tell you the truth. I'm more of an anti. Okay, whatever. You're a curious physician. You tell me what it is. Okay? <laughs> I'm, an an I'm more of an anti-psychiatrist than a psychiatrist these days. But I love the point you're making here about coronavirus. And, and this is something that I saw you making first. So you, I really want to, uh, you know, appreciate you for this. And I think this is such a wise observation that the coronavirus pandemic, and we'll get into more of your thoughts on coronavirus and, 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 you know, asymptomatic cases and where we go from here, but the coronavirus pandemic shows us that if the government gets on board with something, we can create real behavioral change in humans. And this has been used as the excuse for lifestyle change for decades now, and the excuse for pharma for decades now. They say people won't do it. Well, People won't do it because they're confused and because the messaging is unclear and because the policymakers will not support this because there are too many governmental, there are too many lobbies that stand to benefit from the persistence of bad food. So I think it's very clear that people will do behavioral change. If the mandate came down from the government, you know, if there was a very clear message that obesity is changeable with lifestyle and that diabetes is changeable with lifestyle, People will do it just like they've done coronavirus. We just need to be very clear about it. Have you seen the messaging from the American Diabetes Association with coronavirus? They're making a really big ruckus saying diabetes is a huge risk factor, but still nobody is saying, and your diabetes is fixable, <laughs> you know? 
They're saying diabetes with coronavirus is a major risk factor and you could die. But I think that the subtle message is, so stay in your home, not put the donut down. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, you're preaching to the choir right now. I think, I think what's happened is it's truly like a matrix, okay? And, and I don't mean to victimize people because, you know, there, there is an element of, you know, I'm, I'm very conflicted, okay? It's truly like a matrix. Okay, where you have an industry uh, as big as the pharmaceutical industry, okay, who is sponsoring the majority of research, okay, meaning that if truth from a clinical trial was to be elucidated, the main benefactor of that truth that is elucidated is pharma, okay, and the other half of that research arm is big food. Cereal, you know, Kellogg's, Nabisco, Kraft, Nestle, right? And they're very interested in uh, not having you discover what satiating food is. Because if you do not discover what satiating food is, okay, look what happens. You'll continually eat and you'll get diabetes, all right? And you'll get insulin and pharma's happy. And if you do not discover what satiating food is, you will continually eat, you'll become a recurring customer for both pharma and big food and fast food and snack food. So if the truth is there, these big industries don't want it to be found. And in fact, they want the opposite, right? If you are big food, you want to make sure that everybody believes that calories are king, which is the contention of Spencer Nadolsky, Yoni Friedhoff, Blaine Norton, right? So either they're really dumb scientists and clinicians and they keep talking about calories when really calories don't govern how, how hungry we are, how, how hungry you are, right? So, so there's this, there are these systems of control, right? The research arms have fed the research, that research has trickled to the scientists like Yoni Friedhoff, like the clinicians, sorry, like Yoni Friedhoff, the scientists like Blaine Norton, and they are then repeating that evidence, right, like useful idiots to a wide audience. So now the mainstream advice is calories are king, okay, and there's no talk of satiety, right, there's no talk of appetite, there's no talk of metabolic syndrome uh, and metabolic health, you know, health, and uh, that, that, you know, calories are trumpeted as the most important thing. And the, the, the person, the people who win from that are the physicians giving bad advice because it's your fault when you fail. And the other people who win are the pharmaceutical companies who get to sell you drugs when you get sick. And the big food industry wins when you cannot stop eating their food because you think calories are all that matter and you should be moderating the pizza, right? And so I simply ask people, have you ever ate a thousand calories of pizza? That's like two and a half slices. Have you ever ate a thousand calories of eggs? That's a dozen eggs. Okay. If you ate a thousand calories of pizza, how long would it take for you to get hungry? Pretty legit answers, three hours. It'll be three hours 
when you're eating that cold pizza and the cold pizza tastes better than the pizza you're eating before because your, your insulin and sugar have spiked and your sugars come crashing back down three hours later and you're starving again, right? So it's truly a matrix, okay? And, and the, the problem is, and I truly believe I'm fighting. I feel like Morpheus. Like I am <laughs> fighting for that 88% that are asleep. And what they're hearing is, you know, eat less and move more. Calories are king. Protein is all that matters. Eat lean meat. Have your vegetables. Eat six to seven times a day. And you know what? The people who win are those people and their supplements that they may or may not sell, right? And depending on the current time, the books they may or may not sell, the eBooks or books they may or may not sell, they win when you can buy book after book after book. I don't know how many they've put out now. Okay. And yet, and the pharmaceutical companies and, and the food industry wins. So, and who, who loses? The individual, right? The obese, metabolically unhealthy individual. So I think it's a matrix, you know, and, and some people are useful idiots. Some people are just actually know the truth and they're too invested. And some people are, I think, ultimately, it's the evidence that we have in the medical field has been generated by interest. And those interests will design trials that are more than likely to support their own interests, right? Nobody's going to invest a billion dollars, you know, uh, willingly for a negative trial. So that's my thought about that. Sorry, I, I keep talking, man. I keep talking too much. No, it's good. It's good to hear your perspective. And I'll just piggyback on that a little bit. You have the same haircut as Morpheus. So you could be you could be, you know, you got like the, you got the Morpheus haircut. He just took off his hat for anyone that's not watching on YouTube. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I think you and I are both in the matrix and we're fighting for the same things. The number that you've referred to there, I just want to clarify for the listener, some of the statistics that you mentioned earlier that highlight 40 per, 44% of Americans are obese. And you said 70% are overweight and 88% are metabolically unhealthy. And those are statistics that I talk about in my book as well. And the idea is, holy moly, 88% of the United States population in a survey had markers of metabolic dysfunction. And only 12% of the United States population was elite enough to be free from elevated triglycerides, hypertension, increased waist circumference, low HDL, these markers of metabolic dysfunction. Wow, 12% is elite and 88% of people are still having some metabolic dysfunction. That's incredible. And I love that you've highlighted the satiety piece because while we can't deny that calories matter, I don't think humans can put themselves in a caloric prison day in and day out. We've had millions of years of evolution that want to break us out of calorie prison. And you can eat Pop-Tarts and lose weight eating Pop-Tarts but you won't be successful long-term losing weight eating Pop-Tarts. And I think some people like to point to a Twinkie diet, like you can lose weight eating Twinkies, sure. You can be in ketosis eating Twinkies, but your body is not going to let you psychologically stay in a calorie prison unless you have satiety. And the way to achieve satiety, I think both you and I would agree, is nutrient density. And how come the calorie people are not talking about nutrient density? And where do you get nutrient density? 
it sure as heck is not from a piece of pizza. It's from whole foods. I'm an advocate for animal foods, but there are plenty of plant foods that are also nutrient dense, a whole heck of a lot more dense than a piece of pizza. So I agree with you completely. Calories are not king. Satiety is king. And you are a living example of this. If you want to lose weight, you have to find satiety. You have to. You can starve yourself for a short amount of time, but eventually, 4 million years of evolution or even 60 million years of pre-hominid evolution will win. Yeah, the, the drive is always going to be to eat. You put food in front of an animal, it's going to be to eat. So what are your feedback mechanisms? Okay, one, don't put food in front of the animal. Fine, get out of the kitchen. You're stuck in, in quarantine, get out of the kitchen. Go walk outside if you can, right? Go, you know, call somebody, right? Step one, take the food in front of the animal. You put, animal in front of, you put food in front of any animal, they're going to eat. The second thing is, can you leverage satiety hormones, right, to keep you full for a long time? Neuropeptide YY, CCK, the absence of glycemic shifts, the absence of hyperinsulinemia, the presence of ketones. These are all appetite. If we inject neuropeptide YY and CCK into you, before you go into a you know, Chinese food buffet, you're going to eat 50% less. Okay, so these hormones are, are in, and they're only released with protein and fat, right? So protein and fat are, are vitally important to being full. And the absence of carbohydrates, I think, is also vitally important to being full, right? If you add, you know, I, I should take that back. It's difficult. I should say the absence of the carbon fat combination is vitally important. It's very difficult to overeat like baked potato, plain, like raw baked potato. Can anybody eat raw baked potato and, you know, and gain weight? I don't think so, right? So, but if you take that baked potato and you chop it up and fry it and put salt on it, right, and you combine it with a, you know, terrible trans fat, right, you can eat all day. So I think the absence of that carbon fat combination is important. I think that... Um, you know, so you have to find a defense against hunger. And these are defenses. Can you drink water? Water, coffee, tea, seltzer to prolong your fast. Sometimes that's enough of a defense to, you know, miss a meal and then have a big meal later on when you're actually really hungry. So I think you just have to be aware of like the defenses that you have against hunger, you know, whether it's volume through water and hydration, whether it's fat and protein and making sure that you have adequate nutrients and minerals, right? And, you know, the, the look, at the end of the day, if you're not around food and you're not thinking about food, you're not eating food, right? So, so there's a lot of potential defenses. And I think all of these lead to an ancestral or primal or low-carb or keto you know, or carnivore diet. I mean, that's where these lead. Now, can you incorporate carbohydrates and still lose weight or still be healthy? Yeah, I think so. But 88% of people probably don't need them for a long time. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. This is, we'll just drill down on this and then we can get into the corona discussion to get your thoughts on what's going on now. I think that a, a little bit, in, I just want to drill down on this. The type of carbohydrate seems to matter to me. And I think this is where the processed carbs connected with the vegetable oils are particularly sinister. 
like you suggested, I think a lot more people are going to be okay with a baked potato, um, a non-processed carbohydrate. And I would call a processed carbohydrate, even a grain or a flour, like yeah. grain that's been made into flour. That's a processed carbohydrate. We know there's a different glycemic response to wheat that's been made into flour than there is to a wheat grain. I mean, how are you going to eat wheat that's not made into flour, right? This is the problem with grains is they're not very edible unless you make them into a flour, you grind them. And so many of the grains that humans eat are made into flour. So that's the real problem. And grains in general are probably not great food for humans, survival food in the worst of circumstances. But to me, it seems that the, the processing of the carbohydrate, and this is nothing new, this is probably very passe to the listener, is critical. And if we process the carbohydrate, it's a big deal. People will know, as you said, if we use the thousand calorie test, can you eat a thousand calories of potato? That would be much harder than eating a thousand calories of potato chips, which are now potato plus salt and vegetable oil. I think there's some nuance there. And I just want to be careful not to overly vilify carbohydrates as opposed to processed carbohydrates. I feel like that's the main issue. But then we get to the interesting question, are there some people physiologically, and this could just be an opinion from you, and I can offer mine, who really don't do well with any carbohydrates, even non-processed ones. And do you believe in this notion of a carbohydrate threshold? Have you seen any evidence to really substantiate this independent or depending on carbohydrate quality? So I'm, I'm going to step back. 100% agree with the vegetable oil. I think they're mostly, uh, they should be avoided, right? Yeah, I really think they should be avoided. I think particularly because they are likely a lot more trans fats than we actually the, the way that they're processed, they're probably actually a lot worse for, for us than, than anything else. And any food that uses soybean oil or, or any of these processed oils, I mean, they are actually, we, we see higher glycemic shifts after eating a carb-fat combination with processed oil than when, when we do with more carbohydrate alone. So I really believe there's some evidence in the literature that these oils actually are, uh, will cause insulin resistance. Uh, I'm not quite sure on the mechanism, but they've done an interventional study with swapping soybean for olive oil with some positive outcomes. Um, so I think the vegetable oils are particularly, the seed oils are particularly a problem. And, and they're all, I mean, look at who uses them, right? I mean, just start there. Every fast food company, every processed food company, right? So there's a, at the least, they, it's a cheap oil that's just giving you nothing, nothing that your body needs. At, you know, the most nefarious case would be that they know it causes insulin resistance and will create a recurring customer. So I agree with LDL. you. But it lowers LDL, right? Yeah, you can lower LDL with avocado oil, but it's fucking more expensive and they don't want to pay for it, right? And then they, it's more satiating, right? So they, they can do that with olive oil. They can lower LDL with olive oil if they wanted. So I think it's a nefarious, uh, nefarious, there's probably some nefarious, I mean, there's got to be a food engineer out there who knows. Oh, this. yeah, absolutely. So, so, so that's, that's first. Second, I think car, I think, so if you clear your glycogen daily, I think carbs are really not a big deal. In the uh, liver, and, you mean? Yeah, if you clear, if you're fasting long enough or you exercise enough, I think it doesn't really matter if you have some carbohydrates and enough to fill the liver back up. So we're talking about 150 grams. 
Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really think you need much more than that. Right. And, and this is, unless you're doing like three or four hours of activity a day, which just doesn't, just doesn't really happen. So, uh, and it, you know, I think probably starches like potato and wild rice is probably the best way to go or uh, depends on the level of activity. It would be straight, you know, fructose from fruits mixed with fiber, right? So that's probably the way I'd go or I'd go with, you know, if you're looking at it from a glycemic standpoint. So now the question is, is do some people do better without carbohydrates? Yes. Absolutely. There are people who, everybody can't eat everything, full stop, right? They can, I mean, you know this, right? You know this. I mean, we've, we've, there's some data with lectins, there's some data with, uh, you know, um, you know, certain phytonutrients that cause, that, that seem to, you know, exacerbate autoimmune. I mean, look, if you go to a functional medicine doctor between now and the last 50 years, they've been, you know, doing elimination diets, particularly with nightshades. Right. So this is not like, and there's data to support it. There's some data to support that, hey, maybe some rheumatoid arthritis symptoms improve. There's some data to show that some of the inflammatory uh, uh, markers improve when you remove certain lectins. So I I think it it comes down to individual approach, right? How do you feel? Go on an elimination diet, come off of it, see how you feel. Exactly. It doesn't matter to you, go back on it. If you feel a world, but I've seen, I've seen people's, you know, psoriasis get better, you know, I mean, oh my. It, right. It, I, I, but I have to warn like the listener, it's like 20% is my, my rate of seeing improvement on a, so the people coming to me are usually have been doing keto, right? So maybe the people who've gotten more benefit, I'm just not seeing. And then we try an elimination diet right? Just to see if their unexplained medical symptoms resolve. And we have, it's a one in five hit rate, but you know what? That one in five is enough. That's like, that's a lot of people, right? Um, start, yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that there are people who may benefit. And I think the exact, I think I agree with you that fiber, fiber, its benefit has been widely exaggerated. I think it's just, what did it replace? The people that ate fiber ate less crap. I think the people are eating fiber can fill less crap in their stomach. You know, so I, you know, it's like five cups of coffee. Does it do anything? No, it just replaces five cups of crap food, right? (laughs) So it, but yet, you know, everybody says it's like, oh, it lowers mortality, right? So I, I don't really think so. It just replaces crap that was actually hurting you. So that that's my idea. That's my take on fiber and yeah, yeah. Some of those fiber studies are quite are quite misleading because it's in relation to what you know. If you add fiber to a garbage or standard American diet, you might see a benefit, sure. But does that mean that fiber is is in any way, shape, or form beneficial? Uh, you know, outside of the fact that it displaces junk food, potentially not. So yeah, and I think that I think vegetable oils are uniquely promoting of insulin resistance connected with reactive oxygen species formation in the mitochondria. That's kind of how the mitochondria signal uh, insulin resistance in general. I think that's absolutely happening. And I love what you mentioned there, that there are plenty of studies which suggest that that vegetable oils are less satiating and more problematic. And I think the only reason they've been recommended is because you can give somebody canola oil and see their LDL go down when they're LDL hyperfocused. But at the same time, most physicians or most studies are not sophisticated enough to look at the fact that oxidized LPL 
LDL and LP little a are going up when you give somebody vegetable oils as well. They're just saying, oh, we're giving them, we're giving them, you know, vegetable oil and the LDL is going down. But yeah, that combination is particularly sinister. I like the metric that you give there. If you don't clear your liver glycogen daily, you're probably not exercising enough to be eating that many carbs, or you shouldn't, you don't need to be eating as many carbohydrates as you are. How will someone know if they're clearing their liver glycogen? Well, if you had trace ketones or a small amount of ketones in your blood, when you wake up in the morning, you've cleared your liver glycogen. And this is something I talked about on a previous podcast with James Clement, that I think it's probably pretty evolutionarily consistent and pretty beneficial for humans to spend some time in ketosis every single day. Maybe it doesn't have to be the whole day, but how many Americans, how many Westerners never see a ketone in their bloodstream for years and years and years because they're eating 20, you know, they're eating 18 hours a day or, or 16 hours a day. They're eating from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep. They might even be snacking in the middle of the night. You know, they're never clearing liver glycogen, which means you're never getting a single ketone in your body. So I think that as I've gone further down the carnivore rabbit hole, I, I'm, I don't think that everyone needs to have ketones all the time, but I think most humans are going to have some benefit by having ketones every morning. Like when you wake up, you should probably have cleared your liver glycogen overnight. And then whether or not, you know, you have carbohydrates for breakfast or lunch, you can see what happens with your physiology. But I like that metric a lot. Let's, let's shift the conversation a little bit to coronavirus. Cause I would love to get your perspective on this whole thing as another physician, you know, just why don't you give me your overall perspective on where we are now and wherever you want to start from and, and we'll go from there. It's a broad question. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like, look, we have a practice here where we do um, obesity medicine and uh, general primary care. And we're in New York. We're 10 miles away from New York City. So we are essentially in the hotbed. I have maybe over 20 cases uh, in the clinic. Uh, none have been hospitalized. Um, generally, the symptoms have been mild. And... Um, the death rate is pretty high in this area. Uh, most of the death rates in this area are people with metabolic disease, um, particularly obesity, hypertension, diabetes. There are unexplained cases, uh, young people on vents, healthcare workers predominantly. I truly believe healthcare workers are the vector here at this moment in time. Right, they are the vectors. So if you don't need to see your doctor, I mean, we've been using remote technology for the last two years, and you know everybody's calling me up. Every single physician has called me up. What are you doing? Help us. You know, it's like where the hell were you got? You know, because insurance didn't reimburse it, nobody ever did it. But we've been doing it to be convenient and better than everybody else. And so now everybody's kind of picking up that bandwagon. But so I think healthcare workers at this point are largely the vector. I think that um, that it's it's an interesting phenomenon, man. It's an interesting phenomenon. These are amazing times. You know, people are very people are getting very ill, and people are very scared. From my perspective, you know, I'm getting calls every day. You know, can I have Xanax? I'm drinking again. I'm binge eating. Wow. I stopped fasting. I'm fighting. There's fighting in the home. You know. Uh, so a lot of the, you know, these are people who are suffering, right? And the closest place you can go to relieve that suffering is the refrigerator, 
That's two feet away. Two feet after that is the alcohol cabinet. Two feet after that is a telephone to call your doctor or call your drug dealer for an anxiolytic or whatever. Um, so I, it's a tough time for me. Uh, I remember after the second week, after my like fifth call for Xanax, I broke down. You know, and then I was like, I, I can't let people slide back. And we we have over. 500 remote scales and we're seeing the graphs of people's weights start to track up. They lost so much weight and now it's going the other way. Uh. So now we're calling everybody, you know, cause we remotely monitor this. And I was like, you know what? Enough is enough. We started doing town halls, just free town halls. Just come zoom meeting one hour, talk about whatever's going on. The first week we had 50 people. The second week we had 80 people. Then the third week we had 125 people. And then we had to close it down cause we got these high school kids, coming in and you know like causing a ruckus but now we've been getting like 70 80 people a week so a lot of mixed feelings a lot of mixed feelings i you know one thing i've seen that you do is um you know you have very strong opinions and uh particularly that the that this isolation may not be warranted or at least you've asked questions which i think are important and i've seen people come at you and I have to admit that, like, we have to be able to ask questions, right? We have to be able to say, hey, is this the right way to go, right? It's not like, no, it is the right way to go. No, we have to ask, like, hey, is this the right thing? You know, how many times in medicine have we gone back and said, oh, we made a mistake, you know, Vioxx, DES, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, thalidomide, you know, right heart casts, right? That just, there's so many things where somebody should have stopped and said, hey, are we supposed to be doing this? So I've seen the criticism you faced. And so I just want to let you know that I think it's, I think that you need to be able to ask questions at the least. Yeah, yeah. And it's been interesting because I've been wrestling with it, you know, myself, just thinking, what is going on here? Why does this not sit right? And I've, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast is probably following me on social media and has seen me say, could there be downsides to social isolation? Yes, absolutely. We should be aware that social distancing, like you said, you're, you're proving this, you know, social distancing could have downsides and we have to weigh that with the upside and we have to think about what it's doing in terms of the curves. And we can talk a little bit about the curves you know, last week on the podcast, I talked to Kirk Parsley, and we talked a lot about the, the disease curves. But I think one of the things we can say for sure is that locking humans in their homes, or not locking them, but, you know, theoretically, or, you know, figuratively locking them in their homes, putting humans in cages, makes them less healthy. They're more lonely, there's more anxiety, you're getting more uh, requests for anti-anxiety meds, people are gaining weight, they're eating worse food. Xanax scripts are up 34%. And alcohol sales were up 60%, right? Same thing. Xanax is basically alcohol and a pill. And we have to think, wow, like the population has become less healthy during this quarantine. That is without question. And then we're going to eventually end the quarantine and we're going to be a more unhealthy people. So if we believe the quarantine was a good thing, at this point, it's water under the bridge. But if we believe a quarantine, which we didn't really do, or social distancing was a good thing, we better be able to justify that with lives saved. And I'm just raising questions that maybe we actually didn't save as many lives as we think we did with 
social distancing, when we think about the areas under the curve, the main reason, in my opinion, I don't want to soapbox too much on this, the main reason to do social distancing was to prevent healthcare overwhelm. And in states like New York or, you know, in New York City, there certainly was the possibility of hospitals being overwhelmed. But if you look at those two curves, the area under both of them is the same. The area under the curve is the same. The number of people who get exposed to coronavirus is the same, which means that the same number of people will die from coronavirus in both of those situations. <laughs> I, don't think that, I don't think that there's really good immunologic infectious disease evidence to suggest that we will decrease the number of people who get exposed to coronavirus long-term with this strategy. And so that's the question I raise. You know, if hospitals are not overwhelmed, maybe now is the time to think about getting some of us exposed who are healthy. And then, and then when I suggested that perhaps the young or the healthy, and, and I know you had a great response to this that I want to talk about, when I suggested that the young and the healthy get exposed to coronavirus, people said, you want to kill people, you know, even though they're all going to get exposed eventually. And I got reported to the medical board in California for that by a physician on Twitter who was who was exhorting his followers to also report me to the medical board. If that wasn't tribalism, I don't know what is. But it's a crazy situation. Let's just, um, I'll, I'll see if you have any thoughts about my little rant there. And then I'd love to hear more. You have an obesity care practice and a direct primary care practice. The patients you have in your practice who are asymptomatic or having mild cases, you said that the majority of the patients that, that you're aware of in New York who are getting severe illness are obese or have comorbidities. Are, is that what you're seeing in your practice, that, that the people who are positive for coronavirus who are having mild cases are generally not metabolically unwell? Let me tell you, I have a lot of, I've, I have at least five patients. They've lost weight, 20 pounds, 40 pounds, 50 pounds, who are still obese. And I'm like, you know, making a cross because I'm like knocking on wood. Right. Because they're all okay. You know, like they could have easily been on a vent. And, you know, I'm not in the hospital right now, uh, working, rounding in the hospital. But, you know, in the hospitals, they, they are overrun. You know, they are overrun, particularly the ICU beds. You know, the ICU, the level of ICU cases is like, about double to triple what they're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. So luckily, the way that they've structured it by stopping elective cases and mobilizing the consultants and the surgeons to help, you know, that's been a big boon. And um, a lot of the hospitals in and around New York have been, are part of big hospital systems. So there aren't these like small hospitals operating in, in you know, in, in this desert, right? They're all kind of part of a big mothership. And so there's a lot of like, it's kind of like a well-run army now. So it, it's really made me, one, see how well hospital systems can be run. But I mean, there, it's, it's, a, it's a crisis. There wasn't, you know, people were, weren't able to get oxygen and, you know, to get at it, like it's fine. You're like good enough to be on a general medical floor, but how are you going to get discharged without oxygen when you're satting 88%, you know, or 85% on room air, which means your oxygen saturation is like, let's say 10 to 15% lower than when it should be. Right. Um, so I, it's, um, 
it's crazy here. And the front, I, I sympathize with my brothers on the front lines. You know, I have a, a lot of friends on the front lines and, and there's uh, emergency room doctors and nurses and technicians all, you know, it, just in the small community hospital I used to work in, there's, you know, over 80, you know, healthcare workers who've tested positive, you know, so they're endangering themselves and, and their family members. And so with regards to the, uh, you know, I don't think that there's any, so, so I think the whole reason to flatten the curve is to, like, let's say, you know, you got appendicitis, right? Now, like, if you needed surgery and a hospital's completely overrun and you have appendicitis, you may not get the care that you need. And so mortality from appendicitis may go up. Or let's say you have a heart attack and there's no ICU beds, you know. So I think the thought was, we don't know how infectious this is going to be. We don't know how crazy the hospitals are going to get. And we don't want people dying of things that we can actually treat, like a heart attack or appendicitis. So I think that that goal was achieved. You know, that, that goal was achieved. And I think that it was close to, in this New York area, of becoming, you know, I, w- I would say it was close to becoming chaotic, right? It didn't quite get there. So I do think that the social distancing was helpful. Let's say if you compare like Finland to Sweden, where Sweden has double the rate of, you know, uh, deaths. So you'd imagine that it would, without isolation, maybe you'd double the rate of admissions and, and uh, uh, ICU beds. And that's a rough estimate. Some people say it should be higher. Even then, I don't think we'd be at quite at capacity. But, you know, I think this idea of like, hey, maybe we should go out and get health, like just let people get exposed. The only people that have limited risks are people like you and me. You know, I mean, there are less than, right? We're talking about 88% that are metabolically unwell. So that's 12% who are metabolically healthy. I can't find one person in my practice, I would say, hey, go out there. You know, right now I just, I don't, you know, like maybe, maybe some of them. I mean, like I tell my wife, like, yeah, let's go to like walk on the trail and stuff like that, you know, and bring the kids. I'm not like sheltering them away. We go walking on the trail, but we're a sick, we're a sick country. We're not going <laughs> to, there's going to be a lot of pain before herd immunity. There could be. And I think like, like you and I have both tweeted or talked about on Instagram and other social media platforms in a lot of ways, this, this virus exposes how sick we are as a country and how metabolically unhealthy we are as a country in general. Um, I think that's probably one of the greatest tragedies, and that's really been overlooked amidst the general hysteria regarding the fear of the virus itself. And, you know, I, I tweeted something a couple of weeks ago. I said, I'm not convinced that SARS-CoV-2 is a superbug. I just think it's exposing how metabolically unhealthy we are as a people. You know, maybe it's just a virus that is really particularly bad for people who are metabolically unwell. And that's exactly what it appears to be. You know, I think the case fatality rate is constantly being adjusted downward. In Germany, the case fatality rate looks to be between 0.3 and 0.4, higher than a seasonal flu, but on in the same order of magnitude. The Sweden situation is a little bit complex, I think, because I think that by... Um, I think that we won't know 
the per capita fatality rate until it's all said and done and the infection is passed. Sweden did do some, some nuanced social distancing. And I think that what we know is that a virus has a general curve that goes up and down no matter what you do, whether you do social distancing or not. And I think that what we'll see is that Finland, my suspicion or my hypothesis, which could be wrong, right? I reserve the right to be wrong, is that Finland and Sweden will end up with the same per capita death rate. And basically, countries per capita death rate will be based on, will be a reflection of the overall metabolic health of their population, not a reflection of what they did in terms of social distancing. Because I think that eventually the same number of people will be exposed. I know that in Sweden, the nursing homes are larger. There are much larger congregations. And in Finland, the nursing homes are smaller. And I think that in Sweden, a lot of the infections are occurring in nursing homes and in more elderly populations. I heard that 58% in Sweden were in the nursing homes. So there's all these things that kind of make it questionable. My suspicion, or like I said, my hypothesis is that the peak occurred earlier in Sweden and we're seeing more deaths on the front end and we'll see less on the back end. And then in Finland, it's slowed down, but it, that Finland will see the brunt eventually because I just can't really wrap my head around a situation. And again, this could be my limited understanding of virology, and you can correct me if you have good evidence to the contrary. I don't see a situation in which what we're doing changes the number of people who get exposed eventually. And we can use Finland and Sweden as examples. Again, it can slow the progression in the short term while, while hospital systems ready and while personal protective equipment is, is procured. But I think that eventually the same, you know, the same proportion of the Finland population as Sweden will be exposed to the virus. And then I think that the, the per capita death rate will be an indication of the overall health of the country rather than an indication of the, uh, the, the strategy they used. But that's just my thought about that. Well, let's just imagine that there was no hospital, that there was an infinite hospital capacity. Okay, now we're talking about pulling the tape off slowly versus pulling the tape off quickly, right? I mean, pull the tape off quickly right? If you really wanted to, if there was no issue with overwhelming vents, overwhelming hospitals, overwhelming a healthcare system, right? I think it's actually more ideal to expose everybody at once. I agree. Right? Or at least expose the 90% of people that are healthy at once, right? If that, that there was no issue with the hospital system overwhelming, I think, I think with regards to COVID, we just didn't know what was going to happen. And I think, I mean, we see what's happening in the New York area. It's, it's, a, it's a hot mess. I mean, California has been a lot milder. Um, it's a hot mess here. And, and, you know, I have an infectious disease colleague who works in Harlem and amazing doctor, compassionate. And I just, you know, we've talked back and forth and he's, you know, one, he said, thank you for helping me get healthy. One, he was, okay. You know, and then he said, two, this is a mess. I mean, so, so I, I don't think, so look, you're right. Everybody's going to get it, right? It's like the inevitability is coming, right? But do you do it all at once when maybe you're already kind of teetering on having too many? No. Or, you know, yeah. well, in, in where you are, it's like, yeah, go ahead. Like less social distancing where we are. I mean, I saw a, a, a video of like LA County, like literally dumping sand on a skate park. Yes, it was so myself, silly. Like, you know, it's just, just this is this is kind of 
gone beyond where it should. But I, I don't think it's safe. I really don't think it's safe for a sick population. I don't think it's safe. Yeah, you know? and we can talk about, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'll just share a couple of things that are interesting. Um, I'll screen share here. I don't know if you've seen this article. This one's pretty cool. This one's out of China, indoor transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is sort of the, the reason that we should not be dumping sand into skate parks in Los Angeles. So they looked at um, 1,245 confirmed cases uh, from 318 outbreaks with three or more cases, and they found exactly uh, only a single outbreak in an outdoor environment, which involved two cases. All identified outbreaks of three or more cases occurred in an indoor environment, which confirms that sharing indoor space is a major SARS-CoV-2 infection risk. I thought this was fascinating. Um, at least in the, this part of the country, I don't think nature should be closed. You know, no, I think they've there's closed all the parks, which doesn't make sense. You know, it, it, it's I agree with you 100 percent. Right. If you can wear a mask and walk, I don't think there's anything better to do right now. If you can wear a mask and walk outside, like if you're in the city, just go for it. You know, if you can wear a mask and go walk in Central Park, you should do it. You know, if you can wear a mask and walk in the parks all around this area, I think you should do it. They've unfortunately closed them all, which I, I agree with you. It doesn't make much sense. I think indoor congregation kindly, kind of makes sense, right? It doesn't make sense to okay. limit, yeah, like limiting, you know, groups of 10 or, or uh, you know, of less seems to make sense. Yeah, and I... Indoors, you know? Yeah, and I think that what's happening with healthcare workers is probably something to do with the inoculum and the fact that maybe the viral load is is so high, they get exposed to so much of it, it could be much worse, which really, really speaks to the the, the heroics, you know, the heroism of, of the frontline healthcare workers at this time, certainly, and, and the importance of protecting them at all costs. But I... I also want people to know that if you walk by someone in a grocery store for a quarter of a second, that's probably not going to be a SARS-CoV-2 transmission no matter what. Um, yeah, like today, I mean, you know, my, my wife stopped by, um, uh, you know, like a Home Depot and she's like, you know, should I wear a mask and gloves? I'm like, for, you know, for what? I mean, there's nobody there. There's like literally two people in the entire freaking store. You know, so I'm surprised um, it's even open. Yeah, yeah, they're they're open. They're they're considered a whatever a um, essential a, essential retailer. So I, look, I'm with you. I think that the I think if the healthcare system didn't have limits, everybody should get sick now, right? Get it over with, and we could all get on with our lives. If the death rate wasn't going to change, I think the fear has been: Will the hospitals get overrun? And that fear got translated into public policy. Public policy got translated into news media going crazy. News media going crazy went into a widespread hysteria. And now they're dumping sand in skate parks. You know, so it's, it's not, I know how we got here. It's not, it doesn't surprise me that we got to this place. It doesn't make it less tragic. So I agree with you. Let's free the skate parks. <laughs> and free and free the state parks as well and the national parks. Yeah, and let people go in the ocean and do stuff. Absolutely. This is another interesting thing that I got from Ivor Cummins looking at the daily surveillance mortality in Portugal. And you can see here that for um, this upper curve is 
elderly people and the lower curve is the young people. So this is, uh, 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 do, do, yeah, they're showing, and they're basically showing that there's been, you know, no change in the um, mortality um, in Portugal in, in young individuals. And the mortality has really seen the spike in the elderly individuals primarily. And again, it's just kind of speaking to the fact that there is, there is a risk differential here one way to protect, one way to at least consider protecting this elderly group is these people, <laughs> you know, getting exposed. Um, and this is less than 65 and this is over 65, uh, this group here. And, you know, the way to protect these people, theoretically, if these people are healthy, truly healthy, that's what herd immunity does, you know, that, that eventually within a population, nature just selects for this. So this is what we're seeing is that the people who are older, 60, older than 65, that's where the spike is occurring in Portugal rather than the people who are under 65. And, and we see this repeatedly that the, the case fatality rates are very different between the young and the old. And um, the, the single biggest risk factor here is age. On the, um, on the Diamond Princess, which is a cruise ship, which is obviously going to be skewed toward people who are a little more elderly. Uh, the case fatality rate was 2%. Um, interestingly, on the Diamond Princess, the um, only, uh, I believe, 60% of people were asymptomatic and 20% of those on the ship were infected. On the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which has 5,000 uh, military personnel, 13% of people um, were infected, 60% were also asymptomatic, and the case fatality rate was 0.17. So totally different situation there um, in a younger population. So again, it speaks to, I think, the things we're talking about, nutritional adequacy, um, overall robustness, but um, how do we protect the old? And one of the ways that we protect the old might, by, might be by understanding who can really handle this infection. At least it's something worth considering. This is what herd immunity is all about. Yeah, I mean, look, I I don't I deal with a population here that's that's fairly young. Okay, most of my population is under sixty, and every single one of them was told wear a mask when you go out in public. You know, wear gloves if you can, and don't forget to exercise. However, you can get it. Walk outside, right? I don't want any of my patients getting corona. I just don't. I don't want. I don't see a benefit. You know, I don't care about somebody, not that I don't care about, but I don't care about a nursing home in Oklahoma. I, I, I can't control that circle. I can control my circle. My circle is my patients who I care deeply about, and I care about them being healthy and not being exposed. So I'm going to limit their risk factors as best as I can. I'm going to hold town hall meetings so that they can continue their uh, moderation of alcohol, continue their weight loss, continue their metabolic health, right? I'm doing these free webinars so that everybody, everybody needs help right now, right? That's the way I feel like I can help. Just focus them in on diet, on their lifestyle, stress reduction, sleep, right? And staying away from the things that we know, the, you know, the addictive uh, stress releases we know that are in our society. Um, and I don't, I don't want any of them exposing themselves right now. In New York, it's just a hotbed. Yeah. So if you ask me as a, you know, as a, 
I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, but I don't want them. I don't want anybody to get it. Who knows the long-term impact of Corona? If some, if they can live their whole life without getting it, great. <laughs> no, like I, you know, more power to them. When should they go crazy for the rest of their lives? And, you know, like p- vigorously Purell their hands until they bleed? No, you know, I mean, this has gone overboard, right? That's gone overboard. I think just, you know, wear a mask if, if you're around people, stay away from sick people, go outside and take care of yourself. So that, you know, that my, me and my kids were outside in our yard today. We went walking, you know, you should, I mean, right? yeah, I mean, there's no, I'm not going to lock myself in my home to do what? I'm not going to watch the news to, for what? Yeah. You know, it's feeding into all this crap. So look, I understand the intellectual thought process like, okay, let's, peel the tape slowly versus peel it quickly. I understand the idea of flattening the curve. I think the most important curve to flatten is the stomachs, right? That's the most important curve to flatten. And then, you know, the message right now is, hey, it's okay to binge eat, right? Like that's the message. It's okay to stress eat and watch Netflix, right? Right. That's what you're getting when you go on Yahoo or whatever people get their news from, right? So, Every part of me wants to tell my patients to eat more, eat better, you know, sleep, you know, f- get fulfillment in their lives to deal with their anxiety, right? Talk to friends, talk to family, bonding, kinship, right? You know, don't fall back on stress eating or stress drinking or stress, you know, popping Xanax. Come talk about it because everybody else is suffering. Hundreds of people a week are coming and talking about it and, uh, and just keep safe distance. You know, I mean, I, that's, that's my honest gut opinion. And I, you know, I know, I don't know if it's good for the population. I don't know that. I don't know if it's good for a nursing home in Sweden or in Oklahoma or wherever, but I, I think that's, what's good for the people in my life that I can control. Yeah. Now, are you, are you doing RT-PCR testing or antibody testing on your people? So we pretty much have, uh, we've had the PCR testing, right? So uh, our local Department of Health is pretty much doing the, the PCR. We don't do any testing in the office so because we just don't have the PPE, right? We don't have the N95s. We don't have the, we have Tyvek suits, but we donated them because there were other people who needed them. Um, and we were vigorously trying to get a, a drive through uh, site up here. So we don't have the PPE, so we don't test here, but we send our patients out to the Department of Health and the state, um, the state uh, uh, testing location, which is PCR. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Not cool. a lot of, not the, the hospitals are doing a little bit of antibody testing in the past two weeks, maybe since the FDA kind of, you know, speed rolled it. Right. Have you heard, sorry, I just turned on the lights. Um, yeah. Have you heard any of this information about the asymptomatic cases? There's some interesting stuff coming out of Iceland. There's a Stanford study now um, suggesting that a lot of people are asymptomatic or that there's undetected uh, cases. I'll just share this one. I don't know if you've seen this study. Oh, no, I know there's like a, the majority of cases are very low symptoms in my clinic. Yeah. You know, like, let's say... Out of the 20 cases we've seen or so, 
most of them were like a bad cold, uh-huh. right? A bad bronchitis kind of, you know, maybe just lingered a little bit longer. You know, some fever, some cough, right? That's the majority of the way my patients presented. And um, here's the thing, though. We just had a patient who had symptoms for like 10 days, couldn't get testing because testing was unavailable, tested positive through, uh, you know, the nasal swab. And while she was waiting for the testing, she had taken a course of azithromycin. She had chronic bronchitis. So she had done a course of azithromycin, finally got testing, got the test results back. This was maybe like the first of uh, the first of April, and it was positive. This was already when her symptoms were kind of starting to improve. She had a resolution of symptoms three days after testing positive. Okay, then she went another two weeks without any symptoms. And the Department of Health called her back for a repeat nasal swab, and she tested positive, huh. right? She tested positive again with no symptoms. Yes. So, and that, and so that means there's some sort of, you know, RNA sitting in her, you know, nasal passageway even two weeks later, two weeks after symptom resolution. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I heard the same thing. And I think that that's, that's a really important point to make because there's been more and more reports coming out of China that people are turning up positive a second time. And I think that the case is, yeah, that could just be residual RNA from the virus. I don't think we know that, you know, how quickly your body's going to clear the RNA from the nasal passage and you have no symptoms. And people are now beginning to worry, like, can you get reinfected with SARS-CoV-2? And I think that doesn't really make sense immunologically that humans could get reinfected with a coronavirus within a few weeks. That to me is like really premature to worry about that. I think it's likely an artifact of the testing. And that's a, that's a very valuable case to hear about, that she's asymptomatic, but she's still positive just because there's some RNA there and it's amplifying it in RT-PCR. Yeah, I mean, it just, I, I think it just made me ask questions. What's going on? I, I don't know what's going on, right? Yeah. But I don't think... I don't think, uh, I think many people don't know what's going on. And it's, you know, my advice to the patient was just go home, you know, put a mask on if you go out and that's it. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know how infectious that person is, is another question. And this is sort right. of the, the question around the virology. Like, can we really stem the spread of coronavirus? I just wanted to share this thing. Uh, estimates of the undetected rate among SARS-CoV-2 infected using testing. Yeah, I saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically they said, um, our primary estimates for a fraction of infections that are undetected range from 88.7 to 93.6, meaning that, uh, you know, we've, yeah. you know, that you could potentially, you know, multiply, um, you know, multiply the number of, you know, if you look at the number of infections we have in the U.S. right now at Worldometer, you know, they say coronavirus cases, um, 763,000. Uh, if those estimates from Iceland are, are are correct, you can multiply this by 10. You know, we might have 7 million coronavirus cases and we might even have 70. I don't know if we have 70 million, but we may have between one and two orders of magnitude more cases of coronavirus or at least more people who've been exposed to coronavirus, which would make this number look a lot different, right? It, that's the main question we have. I mean, I don't really care about the case fatality rate. I just care about will my patients live or not, right? right? right. I mean, that's like, I'm, again, I, I can't 
control populations. I don't have that kind of control, right? I don't, I'm not a public policy person. I just want to know how do I protect my patients and what's the best I can do. And I think at this point, given this area, which is so kind of overrun, the hospitals are overrun, I don't want any of my patients getting sick. So I, I mean, I don't know what the right answer is. But I, I definitely want them to eat healthy and, you know, not binge drink alcohol and not take anxiolytics and stress reduce and sleep. And, you know, that's what I want, right? Because at the end of the day, either that's going to decrease their risk factors for now and it's going to help them. I mean, like, look, obesity, diabetes, hypertension and heart disease is, I don't know, 20 million deaths a year. Yeah. How do we plan for the next pandemic? We get right? people healthy. Yeah. You know what? I mean, like we wouldn't be here if we actually responded to those pandemics the way we are with COVID, right? Don't eat donuts, right? Eat steak, eat eggs, eat meat, eat fish, eat chicken, Greek yogurt, okay? Green leafy vegetables if you can tolerate them. No carb <laughs> fruit, you know? I mean, eat those things until you're full. And when you're more hungry, eat more of those. And then when you're not hungry, don't eat. And that's called intermittent fasting. Welcome to keto and IF. Done. You'll lose None. weight. Why? You know? Here's the question. Why doesn't anyone call diabetes a pandemic? Yeah, it is. It it's is. A, it's, it's absolutely. It kills way more people than coronavirus. It will kill, it'll kill 10 times as many people as coronavirus this year. Well, more. we do call it the diabetes epidemic, the obesity epidemic. Yeah, you're right. But it, it, it is, should be a pandemic. You're right. I mean, it's, and it's, people say, well, it's not communicable. That's completely false. <laughs> That's completely false. It is communicable. It is inheritable. It is higher in families. It is higher in communities, right? It can be communicated. And in fact, obese patients are more likely to have obese friends, right? So it ideologically, is, yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. Whether it, yeah, and I'm not saying it's an infection, but it is communicable. I think it right? is. Yeah, so, those are the true so pandemics. I, that's the I real think, pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, I think at the bottom line, that's what we're. That's what this. That's what this is right? We're all just upset. We're not, we don't care about Corona. We really deep down know, we, we know deep down inside that we're just sick people. We're a sick country and we can't handle it. We just can't handle it. And so we got to figure out how to move forward with that and, and actually get people to motivate behavioral change like they have with coronavirus around these other things. Now, I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's mostly policy. Um, I'll just share one more study that's interesting. I've shared about this online as well. They screened uh, pregnant women in New York for SARS-CoV-2 at delivery and um, New York Presbyterian Hospital. They had, um, I think they screened 215 pregnant women. Uh, there were only four of them who had fever and other symptoms of COVID-19 on a mission. All four tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. Of the 211 women without symptoms, all were febrile uh, all were afebrile on admission, and there were um, there were thirteen point seven percent were positive, and of the tw- twenty nine of the thirty three who were positive had no symptoms at admission. So here's the bar graph. Here's the pie chart to make it make more sense. One percent were symptomatic, and thirteen point five percent were asymptomatic. So t- and twenty nine, so twenty nine of the thirty three had no symptoms, meaning that. pretty similar to the Iceland study, had no symptoms of COVID-19 at presentation. 87.9%, no symptoms. 
Of the 29 who were asymptomatic, fever developed in three, but two of those three had antibiotics for endometritis, which is a complication of post-pregnancy and the postpartum. And only one patient became febrile, presumed COVID, presumed to be related to COVID-19. So again, between this and the Iceland study, we're looking at some pretty compelling data regarding how many people might be asymptomatic with this. And then the question is, why are some people asymptomatic and others not? That's the most interesting data that I want to see. On the USS Theodore Roosevelt, of, this, of the people that were symptomatic, out of that 600 people who tested positive, those 40% who were symptomatic, can we find meaningful metrics that were different between them and the others? Can we really prove? I mean, that study could be done in a heartbeat. If I could get that data, we could look at the BMIs. I don't think they're going to have fasting insulin on these people, but I bet you we could find the data and show that the average fasting insulin of somebody who's symptomatic with coronavirus is going to be much higher than the average uh, fasting insulin of somebody who's not. Again, it's just my hypothesis, but I think that's the study that needs to be done. And that to me would be the the spark that lights the fire for behavioral change. I hope we can get that study done. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea. You know, it's an interesting idea. Uh, is hyperinsulinemia a risk factor? I, I don't know. It's like a, kind of a chicken of the egg, right? We know it is. <laughs> right? I mean, like I suspect, I suspect it is, or is it the thing that's causing the hyperinsulinemia, like the processed carbs? So I, I don't know, you know, or, you know, I don't really know, but I just know that I don't want my patients eating processed carbs and getting hyperinsulinemia from it, right? So, I, you know, I, you know, I think like we, we look at things in, in such a black and white way. And ultimately, I just want my patients to be healthy, right? Yeah. I just want my patients and in any way that can happen. Um, and I agree with your sentiment that what we're just finding is that it's not so much coronavirus that's an issue. It's just that we're a sick population, right? We're a sick population. I, I, I mean, I just can't say I agree. And most of the data we're finding just shows that. But if you look you know, being a sick, like having diabetes is a risk factor essentially for any infection. Yes. I haven't seen one infection that's better with diabetes. Um, no, so, everything's you know, worse. So, so I don't think it's like a unique process to coronavirus. It's like if you don't eat good, you don't, you know, can't handle stress, you, you don't sleep well and you're eating processed food and you can't get any exercise well. I mean, you're in a world of pain no matter what, you know, you could die from the flu just as much as you could die from Corona. Here it is. Influenza vary virus and glycemic variability and diabetes, a killer combination. This is published in 2017. It's an article examines the connections between the, um, you know, the first line here, following the 2009 H1N1 influenza virus pandemic. I talked about this in detail last week on the podcast with Kirk Parsley. If you guys want to listen to that, you'll hear us talk about that a lot. Numerous studies identified the striking link between diabetes mellitus and influenza disease severity. Tro, this headline is going to be written again a hundred times after this epidemic, I fear. The exact it's already been written. Line. It's already been written a hundred times. I think it probably has. No, it already has been written a hundred times. But here's the thing. If you look at, so let's go back to the mainstream, right? The mainstream you know, the Spencer Nadolskis, I hate to throw him under the bus. He's a good guy. Um, you know, the Lane Nortons and the Yoni Friedhoffs have said diet doesn't matter. There's no diet will prevent uh, coronavirus, right? And, and they've said that, you know, I don't know, Dave Noonan, I don't know what his name is, this public health guy from England. 
You know, he said that no diet will prevent coronavirus, no food will prevent coronavirus. So, and, and I think this diet apathy is a big problem, right? This diet apathy is a big problem, right? Because I think that, I think these are the same people who have led us to this problem, right? These voices are part of the problem, right? I absolutely believe diet will help coronavirus, okay? Is it tangible? Do I know the direct mechanism of action? No, I don't. I just see that at the least, improving your diet and lifestyle is removing a risk factor for severe disease, right? Every evidence that we have, diabetes worsens, you know, any ICU admission, any virus, any bacterial infection, diabetes worsens. So why would I want diabetes for anybody? Why would I want hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia for any of my patients? Right? Why would I want hyperinsulinemia and hypertension for any of my high blood pressure for any of my patients? So I, I, this diet apathy from the people who brought you calorie in and calorie out and eat less and move more, right? Like no diet will prevent corona. I think it's a, tr- it's a tragedy. And I think these people just need to stop. They need to quit. They need to give their licenses back and say, we've been wrong and so we're sorry we screwed up. Or they need to, I mean, in fact, maybe they, some of them are smartening up. Yoni Friedhoff announced, I don't know, about a month ago that he's developing a low-carb program, you know, just as, quick as he, just as quickly as he can monetize off of it, he's created a, you know, he's, he's now endorsed it after being a harsh critic for years and years. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I think the mainstream and the convention has had this diet apathy. And I think that that's just a, a legacy of them being wrong and getting away with wrong advice and blaming the victims. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. If people listen to the previous podcast that I've done, they'll have seen uh, a paper that I talked about previously showing that insulin plays a key role in signaling the innate immune system. There are receptors for insulin on innate immune cells. And so I think that when one cell in the body becomes insulin resistant or one cell type many cells in the body may be insulin resistant. And so if an innate immune cell, if a dendritic cell or a macrophage or a monocyte or an NK cell or a polymorphic, you know, if a neutrophil is insulin resistant, then they're not going to see the tonic signaling from insulin. And I think that's the thing for us people to realize is that insulin resistance happens in immune cells too. Insulin resistance can happen in your immune cells and that makes your innate immune system sluggish. I'll just share one more paper, then we'll wrap it up. Same kind of thing. I mean, we know this. Any yeah. infection, any sepsis causes insulin resistance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. any, it, it immediately causes insulin resistance. We know this happens. Concerning cellular innate immunity, most studies show decreased functions of diabetic neutrophils, polymorphonuclear cells, diabetic monocytes, macrophages compared to cells of controls. There it is right there. You know, we know this happens. And I think that at a molecular level, this is just insulin resistance at the level of these immune cells. And uh, yeah, it saddens me too. And I appreciate you um, really bringing that to light. And I, I similarly am saddened by the messaging against what we're saying here, like diet matters. And I think most people can uh, understand that. And it doesn't have to be a carnivore diet per se. I think it just has to be a reasonable diet based on whole foods. Again, of course, remove I'm an advocate poison. for as many. At the least, remove the poison. 
Yeah, remove right? the poison. <laughs> yeah, like you're actually at the least just remove the poison. But that's the problem. These people can't say it's poison. Yeah. Right. I mean, and then they have to, you know, and I don't, I don't want to get into it. At the least, remove the hyper palatable, ultra processed food is what their lingo is. Right. That's their lingo. So at the least, do that. And so hopefully this podcast will be helpful for all of you guys listening, and you can share this with people in your life who may be worried about coronavirus, but maybe aren't changing their diet or are including things in their diet that are ultra processed and a problem. Tro, my friend, thanks for coming on and spending some time with me on this Sunday night. Where can people find more of your stuff, man? You've got a podcast, Low Carb MD, which is amazing. Where can people find more of your stuff? Yeah, so social media, uh, Dr. Tro, so D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O, Dr. Tro, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. But if you really want to get in touch with me because you need help, uh, you're, in the, you're in the New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, Ma- let's see, Massachusetts, Maine, and Texas, where we are also licensed. But if you're in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, um, you know, and you want help losing weight or you want a a, you know, a kindred soul to Dr. Saladino, please get in touch with me. My office is, you could get me on drtro.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-T-R-O.com. The podcast is a low carb MD podcast. We've had the esteemed Dr. Paul Saladino <laughs> uh, on, and I'm sure we'll have him on again. Um, thank you for having me. This is awesome. This is yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's a great time. I, it's like, I, I just looked, it's like, wow, one and a half hours just flew by. You know? <laughs> Time flies when you're, when you're having fun. Uh, what, this is the last question I always ask everybody and I never warn anybody. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently? Tro? Build a garden. I love it. That's pretty radical in today's day and age. Actually, my wife did most of the work. I'm still recovering from surgery, but yeah, make the garden, you know? So uh, that's pretty much it. Let's see, make the garden. I, I had surgery, man. So I've done nothing radical. You know what? I bought an assault bike. I, 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 I spent 900 bucks because I can't, I can't run. My neurosurgeon said, don't run. Okay. And um, I'm post-op and I can't, and the gyms are closed, you know, but this was before the gyms are closed. So I bought, the, bought an assault bike. I thought it was pretty radical. That's so totally I got an radical. assault bike and I do the assault bike and you know what? My three-year-old gets on it and he's trying to do it. And my, my six-year-old gets on it. My eight-year-old gets on it. So bought an assault bike and with the wife's help built the garden. You know what? I love that you said this. Diabetes is contagious, but so is health. You know, like you're showing your kids this. So people say diabetes and heart disease isn't a pandemic, but it absolutely is. It's absolutely a contagion of ideas but the reverse can also be a contagion of Eat in moderation. Too. You know, everything, every, don't remove a food group. A little bit of ice cream is okay. Yeah, right? that's, that's that contagious. That idea has been contagious, right? Don't skip meals. Eat four to seven times a day. Yeah. Calories are all that matter. These ideas have contagiously caused diabetes and obesity. Yeah, it's a problem. Sorry. Sorry, I got <laughs> to keep hammering it home, man. I keep saying it too, man. I keep saying we're on this. We're getting it. Thanks for coming on, man. I will talk to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. All right, you guys. Thank you for listening to that podcast with my buddy, Tro Kalajian. I enjoy that conversation and how real Tro is. Tro is a real dude and he's doing amazing work with his patients in New York. Certainly if you are in that area and you are in need of a physician, check out his practice. I, um, I really love what they're doing there. 
and I think they are keeping their patients with coronavirus very healthy because they are doing lifestyle changes. So as I said, I've been in Texas in community with my friends at Ancestral Supplements and doing some other business stuff on my own and on the lake and wakeboarding and just being in nature and really trying to uh, get back to a little bit of a natural ancestral connection myself amidst the crazy coronavirus times. I have lots of exciting things happening. My book is on Audible. It is going to be re-released by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in August, which will be a fantastic thing. We've got a new cover coming. We're adding an index, but it's still for sale. Until then, it will never not be for sale. And then I'll be back in uh, California soon. And the other exciting news with me is I am moving to Austin, Texas to, to build some businesses that I will be telling you about very soon, to do some things that I think are very important to me. These are not just businesses. They are businesses to help people become much more healthy, and that is what I believe in at my core. It's why I wrote my book. It's why I do what I do, and Austin is the place to do it. So if you are in Austin, Texas, I cannot wait to give you a high five and see you at a carnivore meetup very soon. That is the exciting news. Hope you're all doing great. Stay radical. Stay radical, my people. I love you all. Get in nature. Jump in a lake. Go in a freezing cold river. Go in the mountains. Do some nature stuff. Go in the sun. Get a tan. Eat good food. Be with people you love. I think this coronavirus thing is blowing over. We'll be gone behind us soon and be a pretty bad memory for many of us. Anyway, are we doing great? Please check out my book, The Carnivore Code, thecarnivorecodebook.com. I will talk to you guys all next week.